Amen. Welcome, everybody. Go ahead and uh, have a seat. Great to see you on a beautiful, rainy morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Interesting, a couple songs there with rain in the lyrics. I think perhaps I had some, you know, anyway. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what I think, actually, about that. But I just noticed there were two songs with rain in the lyrics. So you do with that what you want. So, uh, so Pastor Matt, of course, is down uh, today with his uh, family following uh, the passing of his dad uh, this past Monday, and uh, hopefully you were able to read in the um, uh, in the you know the newsletter that went out this uh, this week. What an encouraging testimony this has been, uh, just to the faithfulness of God. Uh, just listening to Pastor Matt share and just the, the ways in which the Lord is ministering so powerfully to the family. Um, I know that I personally was ministered to uh, last Sunday, as I'm sure uh, you all were, in just uh, the account, as, uh, as Matt shared, just what, what really would turn out to be the final days of, uh, of his dad's life. And you'll remember he made mention a couple of times in the message last week about that inner peace and that confidence and that the wholeness that his dad was enjoying, you know, that, that spiritual strength was really growing at a time, you know, when his physical strength was waning. And Pastor Matt had mentioned uh, a couple times, you know, that uh, though the outward man was perishing, that the inward man truly was being renewed. And, of course, that beautiful picture took me uh, this week reflecting on that. It took me to the text where the Apostle Paul actually gave birth to that thought. And I want to look together at it this morning. Uh, It's in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, and you can be turning there. Um, but I want to look this morning together at the, the ways in which um, it so powerfully applies not only to us, of course, as we prepare, you know, for our passing, but even now, really, as we seek, you know, in this daily walk with Jesus. So in Second Corinthians chapter 4, starting out in verse number 5, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he says that we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, We're perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what it is written, I believe and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the tremendous encouragement that it brings to us, Lord, in every area, Lord, every avenue of our lives. And we pray this morning that you would open up the scriptures to us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just think for a minute as we get started today about the kind of people that you enjoy spending time with, that you're comfortable with, and the kind of people you're attracted Two, because of their personalities. And if you're anything like me, you're probably not drawn 
to people who are rude or forceful or intimidating, right? Or people who are demanding their own way or, or they want only to talk about themselves or they poke fun at you and laugh at your expense, right? More likely, you're probably drawn to people who are kind and have a gentle spirit. They're compassionate people and they're, they're people with whom you feel like you're safe, right? And people in whom you feel you can put your trust. Um, in essence, you're probably drawn to people who are like Jesus, right? Because is there anything really about the character of Jesus, you know, as we read about him in the Gospels, is there anything about his character that's unattractive? You know, do we ever read the Bible and think, wow, Jesus, I think, you know, I think maybe you could have handled that situation a little bit better. Or, you know, maybe, Jesus, you should have been a little bit more gracious with him or with her. Or, you know, I don't know if I would have said that. You know, of course we don't, right? We don't think that. And it, and it sort of almost sounds irreverent to ask the question, doesn't it? See, the, the point is there's nothing unattractive about Jesus. There's nothing that's intimidating. And what's most unfortunate is that the people who are out there who really feel antagonistic toward the Lord Jesus, those people for the most part are really just upset with Christians, right? They're upset with us because though we claim to follow after and we claim to model Jesus, what we usually do a better job of showing them is our own sinfulness and and just showing them on display our fallen nature, which is so ironic because what the Bible actually teaches us is that just as soon as we are born again, that Jesus gave us his nature so that we could be like him. And, And there is only one thing that's standing in our way. There's just one thing that's really keeping each and every one of us from being exactly like Jesus. And it's us, right? It's you, it's me, right? We are, in this case, truly, we are our own worst enemy because what we want is we want our way, don't we? We want to exalt ourselves. We want things to be about us. But as Christians, the, the, the fundamental and the foundational truth is that it's not at all about us. It's about Christ in us, right? And so in this text today, here the Apostle Paul really helps us to understand how to, if you will, how to get over this hurdle and become more like Jesus. And, and he shows us what I love to refer to as the blessing of brokenness. And if you work through the passage, we're going to see first he lays out this premise of brokenness in verses 5 and 6. And then he proposes this purpose that brokenness has in verse 7. Then he illustrates the process of brokenness in verses 8 through 12. And he finally finishes up with this promise that comes with brokenness in verses 13 through 18. So let's just jump right in uh, with Paul and this premise for brokenness. Uh, Back in verse 5, he starts off by sharing, again, that we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus sake. Now, before you get too excited about that whole servants thing, the word that Paul actually uses here for servants is the word slaves. Exactly right. So what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, look, it's not about us. We're just slaves, right? We're not preaching ourselves. It's not us we want you to fall in love with or or to be drawn to. It's not our personal achievements or our accomplishments. It's not this church's programs or, or procedures, but it's Jesus Christ singularly. And we are simply your slaves to help you grow in your understanding of him. And, and I just think that right there in just our very first verse of our text today, that should help to put it all in perspective, doesn't it? Because really... How much time do each and every one of us spend thinking and wondering and worrying about what people think of us or, or about how they respond to us or what their opinion is about us? Don't answer the question. Okay, that's just a little food for thought. Don't answer that. You see, what we really need to believe 
it's not about what they think of us at all, but it's about what they think about Jesus, right? That's what Paul was concerned about here. Do you want to be miserable all the time? Because I will tell you exactly how to do it. And again, you're going to want to write this down. You ready? If you want to be miserable all the time, think about yourself all the time. I guarantee you'll be miserable. Now, do you want to have joy and do you want to have freedom? Think about our Savior all of the time. Amen? Think about what the Lord has done for you. Don't think about what he still needs to do for you, right? But think about what he's already done. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Awesome. You know, when we really realize that he's taken us from this place of separation and of darkness and of despair, and he has brought us into this new and glorious relationship with him, we can't help but realize that we really are his servants, and we really want to be his slaves so that we can help other people to realize that very same blessing and understand and to know that peace in him. And, and next, Paul explains how all of this happened to us. He explains how God worked this miracle in our lives as he describes this glory of Jesus revealed to us. In verse 6, Paul says that it's the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember in the the Genesis account, right, of the creation, God spoke and light appeared, right? So the spoken word of God is what brought light where there was only darkness, right? What was once without form, and it says void, the word of God brought order and brought light. And so Paul says that it was the living word, Jesus Christ, that the Father used to shine his light into our darkened hearts, and to bring us out of that place of being without form and, and void, and to bring us into this, you know, from this place of confusion and disorder uh, into this place of knowledge of Him and an understanding of His glory and His grace. And the great apostle here acknowledges that we come to this knowledge of the glory of God. How? By seeing that very same glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So God has given us this display, this picture, this representation of his glory, and it's his son, right? It's Jesus. You remember in John chapter 14 where Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. He says, that's all we need, just show us the Father. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, hey, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Because both the face and the grace of God the Father are revealed in the person of Jesus the Son. So people will often ask us, you know, how do I know what God is like? How do I know that he's not this vengeful, vindictive, angry, upset God? Because after all, that's what our guilty consciences are looking for, right? We want somebody to be upset with us and angry with us, and we know that we've given him plenty of reasons to be. But you see, the face of the one who freed that woman who was caught in the act of adultery and who commended that woman who washed his feet with her tears despite her well-known reputation as a prostitute, that face of Jesus tells me differently because it's a face that speaks of grace and of mercy and of love, and it's a face that reveals the heart of God. And as Paul proposes next, he builds on sort of what we're calling this premise of brokenness, right? That we know the Father because he's been revealed to us through the Son. And now he reveals the purpose of brokenness, right? Which is that those around us should know the Son because he's revealed in us. In verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure 
or this glory of Jesus Christ, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, this to me is such an evidence of God's amazing economy. Okay? If you think back to Psalm 103, it says that he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And in Genesis 2, it says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So we are earthly, right? We're like clay. We're made from dirt, right? That image of the potter making a clay pot. And by his spirit, God places the treasure of his son into these clay pots that are our lives. Now think about that just for a minute. Who exactly is worthy to be a container for the light and the glory of God? Right? The smartest person isn't smart enough. The purest person isn't pure enough. The most spiritual person isn't spiritual enough. And the most talented person isn't talented enough. So we are all just these clay pots, if you will, that are holding this unspeakably great treasure. Paul says to the Colossians again that this is a mystery. He says a mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, think about it. This is like placing the crowned jewels, right? It's like placing the glory of Great Britain and everything that is the monarchy. It's like placing those jewels into a garbage bag, after all, it's only logical that if, if somebody has a thing of such beauty and value that maybe you should have a gold-covered box or a vault or a fortress or something exquisite that would hold it, right? Therefore, it's a mystery indeed, as Paul says, why God would place this treasure of his Holy Son into clay pots like us until... It's a mystery until we realize and until we recognize that God has done this deliberately, right? And he's done it so that that excellency and the beauty of the treasure would be just a little bit more brilliant. See, the, those very same crowned jewels that I mentioned behind all of their security systems and fortresses and bulletproof glass, they're strategically displayed, how? Against a beautiful, dark velvet cloth. And I think we even talked about this last time we were together. You know, when you go to a jeweler and want to buy a diamond, they don't just kind of fling those precious stones out on the polished glass countertop, do they? Instead, what do they do? They lay the stones across a piece of black cloth. And why do they do that? Because against that dark background, those brilliant diamonds appear even more brilliant, don't they? Their beauty is sort of enhanced because of that contrast given by the dark background. So our dustiness and our earthiness are used by the Lord to cause people to be just that much more impressed with that treasure and the beauty of Jesus inside of us. You know, a perfect vessel would be very safe, but a perfect vessel would only bring glory to what? The perfect vessel, right? Where you take earthy vessels like us, oh, kind of risky, right? Kind of risky, but boy, how profoundly they can bring glory to God. And so now we start to see the wisdom of God, right? We begin to understand the beauty of his plan, and now we get kind of to the heart of the matter. Because we know that the treasure is in here. And we know that the treasure is especially beautiful against that dark background of each of our lives. But how does that beauty get out? How is it that the people around us are going to see that beauty of Jesus that's inside of us? And the answer is one word, brokenness. Brokenness. You know, it was 1947, and there was a, a young shepherd boy that was playing in Israel above the Dead Sea and maybe, you know, throwing rocks into the caves. And suddenly there was a ping. And so he thought, wow. And so in they went... Right, it, it, The rock had hit something unusual, and in they go to check it out. And what he found was no less than the most important 
archaeological discovery of our times. And it's what we, of course, refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And after excavation, and, and what they found was this group of sealed clay pots in 11 different caves that contained ancient manuscripts of all of the Old Testament biblical texts, most all of them. And truly, this was a treasure because what they did is they helped to verify the authenticity of nearly every Old Testament book. But you see, the treasure couldn't be seen, right? The word of God couldn't be revealed until those clay pots had been broken open to expose the contents. And of course, for us, the very simple reality is that until we're broken of ourselves, that the people around us won't see Christ in us, right? They won't see that glory of Christ that's shining through us. So it's because of this, now Paul moves on, and starting in verse 8, and he's going to explain the process of brokenness, which is where he says that we are hard-pressed on every side and yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So, of course, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway, right? That, that God allows in each of our lives, he allows us to go through these hard times that are expertly engineered, right? Or I should say they're sort of divinely managed not to destroy us, but simply to dismantle us, right? To get us to that place where we will simply submit to him. There was a, a super interesting article I read once about men in Asia who trained these eagles for hunting. And the author wrote that the capture, taming, training, and keeping of eagles is highly ritualized. Most of the birds, which have a lifespan of about 40 years, are caught when very young, either snatched from a nest or trapped in a baited net. And once captured, the eagle is hooded and placed in a cage with a perch that sways constantly so it cannot rest or sleep. For two or three days, it is also deprived of food. And during this time, the eagle hunter talks, sings, and chants to it for hours on end. Finally, he begins to feed and stroke it, and slowly the weakened creature comes to rely on its master. When the trainer decides that their relationship has become strong enough, the training then begins. Not all eagles can be trained, but those who take to life with a master display intense loyalty. Now, you know, reading this, it sounds like this training and, and it's kind of harsh. And yet I think that in, in such a great sense, it's a picture of the way that God over a long period of time deals with us, right? He's breaking us of that independent spirit so that we can learn to draw close to him, right? Not trying to kill our spirit, but trying to simply crucify our flesh, so that, as Paul says in verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. So Paul's saying that as we go through these hard times, there's opportunity for the light of Jesus to shine forth as that vessel is being broken, right? He, like any Christian, Paul wanted the life of Jesus to be evident in him, and he knew that it was only going to happen as he carried about the body of the dying Lord Jesus, right? There are some great aspects of God's work that can only happen in our lives through testing and through trials and through suffering or through that breaking of those clay pots, right, so that the glory of Jesus can be revealed. Now, in Judges chapter 7, that's the sort of the Old Testament companion to this New Testament truth. And you Bible students, of course, you know the story, and all of us are going to look together at it on one of our Wednesdays coming up. But you'll remember that they, as they charged oppressive taxes and as they plundered the cities, the Midianites were provoking the children of Israel mercilessly until God called this reluctant guy, Gideon, to be the deliverer for his people. And when Gideon called the men to him to march against the Midianites, it says that 32,000 men responded. 
And yet Gideon says to the Lord, wait a minute, Lord, there's 145,000 Midianites and there's only 32,000 of us. I don't like the odds. And the Lord said, neither do I. You have way too many people with you, right? You guys know the story. So he patiently works with Gideon, painfully reducing his forces from 32,000 fearless men down to 300 guys, right? And then finally now, at the point where he was stripped of his own resources fully, Gideon was now in a position where God could use him. And so you remember God gives him the plan. Each guy would have three things. They'd have a trumpet, a torch, and an earthen vessel or this clay pot. And what he told them to do was take your lit torches and put them inside the clay pots so that the light is hidden. Position your 300 men all around the surrounding hills where the Midianites lay sleeping in the valley below. And then on this given signal at this precise time, remember they blew their trumpets, they broke open the clay pots, revealing the light that was underneath. And you remember they shouted, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And of course, the Midianites, woken up from a sound sleep, hearing the the crash of these pots, seeing the light around them, stumble around in the darkness. They thought that each one of the torches didn't represent just one soldier, but traditionally would represent an entire battalion of men. And they cried out, we're surrounded by thousands. And you remember that in their confusion, they actually began attacking one another. And God delivered them right into the hands of the Israelites. Great story. So, of course, we see the point, right? There was victory in this dark of the night because the light caused the enemy to be confused and to be beaten back. But, of course, we we know that the light could only be seen when the earthen vessels that contained it were fully and finally broken open. And so for us in our lives. We have this beautiful light of Jesus in us, and it can only be revealed when those earthen vessels are broken. And this is why Paul says, verse 11, with confidence, he says, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul knew that all of the spiritual insight and the spiritual riches that he brought to the Corinthian Christians came in part through this death-like suffering that he endured in his ministry, that God had made him more effective in ministry through sufferings. It's been said that when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about the glory of knowing Jesus. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, there are so many Christians who long to know the power of his resurrection, right? But they don't want anything to do with the fellowship of his sufferings and certainly not being conformed to his death. But there are certain fragrances that can only be released through that broken vial. Amen? And so Paul here could rejoice that he knew both the suffering and the glory of the Lord because he knew that they were intimately connected. And so he continues in verse 12. He says, so then death is working in us, but life in you. Death is working in us. What an interesting concept especially when you think about the fact that there's this multi-billion dollar per year health care, health food, fitness industry in our country whose sole objective is to avoid or to put off or maybe even ultimately eliminate death, right? But in a spiritual sense here, God's ways are not our ways, are they? His economy is not at all our economy and what the scriptures tell us is that death actually brings life and that in fact true life comes only through death 
And sometimes I think we get the idea that if someone's really spiritual, right, or if they're really used by God, that somehow it, it must be because they're living in this constant state of victory. That means, you know, they just live these charmed, easy Christian lives. And yet understanding what Paul writes here not only tells us that God's servants may experience death-like suffering, but instead that God's, God has a good and he has a glorious purpose in allowing it. So that's why Paul says death is working in us, but life in you. In other words, Paul says, hey, we're dying so that you might live. Right? Because it's only as we die to ourselves that we can be a blessing to others. Because the, the less there is of me, the more of a blessing I'm going to be to my wife or to my kids or definitely to any of you. Because, and I know you're all going to agree with this, you don't need more of me. Amen? You need more of Jesus in me. You need more of Jesus revealed through me. And so Paul says, yes, we're, we're persecuted, we're crushed, but it doesn't bother us. He says, because... You know, the, the, through this, it's the light of the Lord that comes flooding out of us in ways that reveal the beauty of Jesus within us. And that's the blessing of brokenness. So I'm starting to see kind of the blank stares, right? You're saying, okay, I get it, right? I understand this brokenness program, right? I need it. But what exactly is it? And what does it look like? And, and you know, what is it like when I walk out of here this morning? Well, simply this. It's the doing away with our self-sufficiency, right, or all of those natural inclinations. It's doing away with those and replacing them with a reliance on Jesus. And if that doesn't make sense, how about this? It's getting rid of the first half of Galatians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the works of the flesh being evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So getting rid of all of those things and then replacing them with the second half of Galatians chapter 5, where in verse 22, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then Paul finishes up by saying that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's brokenness. See, it's the, it's the breaking of our flesh life and exchanging it for Christ's life. And, of course, there's this initial brokenness that happens to each one of us in our lives when we first come to really realize our sin, right? We're broken over our condition, and we realize that we need God's forgiveness, right? That's the point where we're born again, right? But then there's this continuing process of brokenness in a believer that takes place very slowly over time. And it was Alan Redpath who so rightly said that the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And it's a task in the sense that being broken is God's work, but it's our work too. He applies the pressure, but we have to make a choice, right? Every time, little choices throughout every day, we can either stiffen our necks and we can refuse to repent, or we can bow our heads and, say, heads and say, okay, Lord, you're right. You're right, Lord. Have your way with me. You know, it was, it was Theodore Steinway, right, the piano craftsman. He said that it's the 40,000 pounds of pressure exerted on the 245 strings of a piano that creates beautiful harmony. And, and sometimes it's only that pressure of the, the persecution or the trials that we're undergoing that's the thing that's going to cause the song to resonate in our hearts, right? And then, then in the hearts of the people with whom we're sharing or, or to whom we're ministering. But the beauty of this whole deal is that we're not called to try to create or to manufacture anything. We're not called to try to make ourselves better or be more like Jesus. 
all we need to do is let to the outside what's already there on the inside. Remember, that's that mystery, right? The Christ in you, the hope of glory. We need to allow those difficulties in our lives to etch away at that ugly exterior so that the interior can be seen. See, it's, it's not about be better. It's just about be broken, right? So that we're not masking Christ in us. And what we see when we look around at the world, and certainly as we look at the pages of the scripture, is that God uses those broken things to bring about better things, right? We'd say that it's broken soil that you have to have to produce a crop. It's broken clouds that give rain, right? It's that broken alabaster box that we talked about in Mark 14 that gives the beautiful perfume. And it's Peter weeping bitterly after he denied Christ. That broken man is the one who returns to greater power than ever after that. And so Paul knew this, and he could confidently say here, hey, good things are happening even in our tribulation and our difficulty because it's through those hard times that Jesus is revealed and that he shines brighter. So we've got this premise of brokenness, right, that we have this knowledge of the Father because he's revealed himself to us in the Son. We have this purpose of brokenness that, we, that more of Jesus would be seen in us. Certainly, we know a lot about the process of achieving the brokenness, right? All the ongoing trials in our lives. And now we're going to finish up with the promise of brokenness, right? So here we are in this kind of a progressive process of being broken. And Paul says in verse 13, But since we have the same spirit of faith, according to that uh, what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, He says, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Don't miss the significance here, because Paul really believed that God had this purpose in these death-like sufferings, and he really believed that he lived and experienced that resurrection life of Jesus. And because of that, he didn't despair in his sufferings. Instead, he looked at every death-like trial just as the sort of the prelude to this release of resurrection power into his life. Awesome. Do we really believe that? Kind of a searching question, I know, for a Sunday morning, right? Do we really believe that? See, the the way of brokenness is the way of the cross. And the the cross was that means that God had provided so that we would live, right? It was the death of Jesus, right? Through the breaking of his body, which we'll celebrate and, and remember today at the end of service. It's through that that we were given life. And in the same way, it's the crucifixion of our own flesh. That's how we experience life. Remember in Galatians 5, it said that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Because Jesus can't fully live in us. He can't be revealed through us until that flesh, right, that proud, unyielding self within us is broken, right? And what that simply means, again, that, that unyielding self inside of us that justifies itself and wants its own way and always wants to stand up for its rights, you know, seek its own glory. At last, that proud, unyielding self has to bow to God's will, right? Admit that we're wrong. Give up our way to Jesus's way. Surrender our rights. Surrender our glory, right? And until we're really willing to do that, people around us are never going to really see the glory of Jesus within us, right? These are the things that make us not like Jesus, aren't they, right? It's always that self, right? That old stinking self, right? As Stan would say, it's always that stinking self that gets irritable and envious and resentful and critical and worried, right? It's that self that gets hard and unyielding in the the attitudes that we have towards others. It's that self that's shy or self-conscious 
or reserved. It's the self who's always thinking about itself, right? So here in quoting, Paul quotes Psalm 116 and he says, look, I speak which I believe. I believe that the Lord is going to raise us up, right? I believe that all things are going to work out for his glory, Paul says. And we believe, right, that because the Lord Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross, we believe that God raised him from the dead, right? And we believe that both in death and even now, we believe he's going to do the same thing for us. Isn't it so strange sometimes the way our minds work that we can so easily trust in Jesus for our eternal destiny, but boy, how we struggle so much to really just put that same trust in him as it relates to our present struggle, right? By faith, we need to trust his word. We need to trust that as we truly die to our rights and die to our glory and not worry about that other person or that situation or whatever it is, we need to believe that we're going to be raised up with Jesus. Believe that his life and his power are going to be evident and manifest in our lives and believe that his sweetness and his grace and his gentleness are going to start to really be enjoyed by those around us. Believe it by faith. H.A. Ironside said that God is looking for broken men who've judged themselves in the light of the cross of Christ. When he wants anything done, he takes up those who've come to the end of themselves, whose confidence is not in themselves, but in God. Remember we said at the beginning, it's not about us. It's about Christ in us. Right? It's about his desire that others would come to see and to know and to experience that same love and that same forgiveness. As Paul says next, he says that all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. And therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. A great reminder, right? Though we're suffering on the outside, we're growing on the inside. Right? We're constantly growing in our understanding of his grace and in that hope and that confidence of eternal glory. And here's the, there, there's this wonderful supernatural renewal that happens in us as a result of brokenness. Brokenness always brings a return to joy and gladness. Brokenness makes the word of God come alive again in our lives. You know, before we were avoiding its convicting gaze, but now we have the ability to have the humility to call sin, sin, right? We don't rename it. We, we, we're newly honest with ourselves and we're newly honest with the Lord. It causes us to take responsibility, right? We don't blame God. We don't blame other people for our mistakes. It produces this godly sorrow, right? Humility. It levels the flesh and it brings this new intimacy with God where we're now more moldable in his hands. And there's nothing separating us. There's nothing hindering our intimacy and our communion with him. Brokenness brings this fresh appreciation for the work of the spirit in our lives because we know how desperately we need his power and that we're powerless without that power. It brings a refreshing in praise and worship. Right? Worship becomes real again, doesn't it? Because it's worship from your heart. It's not just from our lips. The songs mean more, right? The more broken that we are. Prayer, of course, is also ignited by brokenness, right? As we stay close to the Lord in intimacy and we're interceding for others. Brokenness also brings a fresh appreciation of our service for God, right? This privilege that we have of serving and of working for the Lord in the ministry. You know, because our eyes now are more fully fixed on him instead of on our problems and on our pain and our issues. And with all of that stuff out of the way, we actually have time for the two greatest commandments, don't we? Brokenness brings, it revives the joy that we should have of our salvation, our passion for evangelism, our happy-hearted testimony, because we can't help 
but speak the things that we've seen and heard and to tell of all that the Lord has done for us. And it helps us really to think on the lost because we're just so stupid happy to be saved, right? We want everybody else to know that same happiness, don't we? What a list. And I'm sure there's so many more that God's done for you that I've forgotten on this list. And brokenness brings all of these things into our lives. And all of this... Paul reminds us, all of it brings glory to the Lord because what it does is it causes others, it causes them to marvel at his grace in our broken lives and then give thanks for it. See, it's, a, it's an understanding of this truth and a confidence in it that should enable us to endure even the most difficult situations that we go through. And that's why Paul can finish up This morning in verses 17 and 18, he declares that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So by faith, right, Paul could look ahead past his pain Right past his circumstances, past his self. And yes, I said his self, right? And he could see eternity. And in view of eternity, Paul refers to all of these afflictions as light. And remember, you know the story of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't writing as a, like a kindergartner in the school of suffering. I mean, this guy had an advanced graduate degree in suffering. It was later in this very same letter to the Corinthians, verses 23 through 28, he describes some of the sufferings he'd been through. He talks about stripes and prisons, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, perils of waters, robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And those are just the physical, outward sufferings, right? To say nothing of the spiritual burdens that Paul carried and the spiritual attacks that he faced. And there's one author who says that this rich theology of suffering was forged on the anvil of Paul's own experiences of the sufferings of Christ. Paul knew what it was to suffer, and yet he still says, hey, no problem. He says, because these light afflictions are doing some heavyweight work in us. Amen? You know, there's lots of people who would, you know, say that Paul probably suffered from eye troubles, that maybe, you know, some disease of his eyes, that was his thorn in the flesh. And yet it would seem to me, ironically, that we should all pray to have the eyesight of Paul, right? To see whatever it is that we're enduring presently as light, compared to the weight of God's glory and of the promise of eternity and in the working out of that in our lives here and now today, right? To see the blessing of brokenness, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those around us that we touch, right? To see all of those events and those circumstances, you know, not through physical eyes, but through spiritual ones. Again, it was Pastor Alan Redpath that said that you're never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things the way that they are. You know, you know the story of Paul's life and of his ministry. In the world's life, in the world's eyes, I should say, his life was an incredible failure. Because at the height of a career that was certainly destined to reach a lot higher, Paul left all of that and traded it for a life of hardship and of suffering and of persecution that would eventually end in being martyred. But Paul recognized, again, the world only sees the outward, not the unseen eternal things. And that there was, and that there indeed still is, even today, a greater purpose in all of this. We'll close with this. In John chapter 8, remember that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But then, interestingly, in Matthew chapter 5, he said to the disciples and to you and to me, he said that you are the light of the world. So was Jesus confused? (laughs) 
Are there two lights of the world? Well, of course, no, right? And think of it this way. You've all heard this before. You know, Jesus is the sun, right, the source of the light, and we're more like the moon, right? And we live in these dark times, and yet as we walk with Jesus, we reflect his light. But I want to go one step further than that, and I want to think about this. The reason that the sun isn't visible during a lunar eclipse is because the moon comes between the sun and the earth, right? In other words, when the moon gets in the way, the glory of the sun, S-U-N, can no longer be seen. Did you do the math yet? Right? So when we, the moon, get in the way, then the glory of the S-O-N can no longer be seen. So remember, we're called to be the light of the world, not to get in the way of it. Right? And yet, the degree to which we allow ourselves to be seen is always the degree to which the real light is going to be eclipsed. And on the other hand, if we allow God to break us, right, if we just stay out of his way, then his reflection is going to be crystal clear in our lives for everyone around us to see. See, that's the, the premise and the, the purpose and the process and the promise. All of that is the blessing of brokenness. It's more of him, less of us. Those of you who knew Pastor Don McClure from Calvary Chapel, San Jose, he would often remind us that a man is the only thing worth more when he's broken. Amen. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for, the, um, for your strange economy, Lord, for the way that you work in our lives, Lord, so contrary to what our natural understanding would see, Lord, and we thank you for these truths, Lord. We thank you that you have chosen us as marred and broken and flawed vessels, Lord, and that you've placed the light of your Son inside of us and that you would use us to reach out and to minister, Lord, and to be a conduit of grace to those around us. Lord, help us to be faithful to that. Father, we pray even now as we Take this opportunity to celebrate communion, Lord. What a perfect day to do this, Father, as we just remember the broken body of your Son and the shed blood, Lord. Lord, and as we remember it as the basis of the brokenness that should come in our lives. Oh, how we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, in his precious name.